How many of you have heard of the Mennonites? Lots of us. I figured most of us would know who they are. They're a group of Christ followers who emerged out of the Reformation times based primarily on the writings of a man named Menno Simons. That's where the name Mennonite came from. And the Mennonites, they were persecuted by both Catholics and Protestants during the time of the early Reformation because they didn't practice infant baptism. They only would baptize people who made a profession of faith. So they were persecuted by both Catholics and Protestants, and they moved from Western Europe, where they originated, and fled to Eastern Europe, Ukraine, Russia, some of those countries. And eventually, uh, many of the other Protestant denominations picked up on the whole believer's baptism idea, because that's kind of what the Bible teaches, and so they stopped persecuting them for that. But they also had this whole pacifism thing that a lot of people didn't like. And so in the late 1800s, when the tensions started to escalate in Eastern Europe and war and fighting started to break out, those countries began to try to conscript them into their armies. And of course, the Mennonites said no. And so they were again persecuted because of their beliefs. And so this time, they fled not to Western Europe, but to the United States. And they came to the United States and they settled primarily in the Midwest and in the Northeast, in Pennsylvania, which is probably why so many of us know about them. And so why, you might be wondering, am I telling you about the Mennonites? Well, as, as we're going to see, the Mennonites embodied what it means to be able to do all things through Christ who strengthens us, which is our twisted scripture for today. And it's the final one in our series. And so the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at how this verse is twisted up, and then we're going to straighten it out. And we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. So you can turn there in the, uh, the blue pew Bibles in front of you. It's page 982. 982, Philippians chapter 4, and as you're turning there, I'm going to pray. Father, I thank you so much for your son, Jesus, and I thank you that he does give us strength, inner strength, Lord, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit, who we have living inside of us, and I pray, Lord, that your spirit would be totally in control of me now, God, that you would speak and my words would be your words, my tongue and lips, and mind, and heart, and all of me would be fully yielded to you. And I pray, Lord, that as you speak, that your spirit would move all of our hearts and transform us and encourage us with the truth of who we are as your children. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians 4.13. Many of us could probably recite it by memory. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And this is a favorite verse of, of many people because of the message it seemingly offers. It's often understood, misunderstood, to be saying that as long as I have Jesus given me strength, I can do anything I set my mind on or over, overcome any obstacle that I face. So it, it's regularly used as a sort of biblical mantra of achievement or protection. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Ah! 
It's kind of a, a biblical invocation that I can utter for strength before moving forward with the trial ahead. So you'll see athletes writing it on their uniforms. You'll see thrill seekers quoting it before they jump out of airplanes. You'll see soldiers meditating on it as they march into battle. You'll have people tattooing it on themselves as, as their life verse. And pretty much anyone else who's facing some sort of obstacle, you can hear them say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm going to get through this. The problem is that this verse isn't at all about God helping you overcome the obstacle before you or achieving whatever the goal is that you're trying to reach. Yes, yes, the Lord will strengthen us and he will guide us and he will defend us and he will uphold us. Those are all true. But there are many other verses that speak to that, not this verse. We can't twist it that way. So what, what's this verse actually saying? What's the real passage? Well, we understand how it's twisted. It's not about achievement. We're going to learn that it's actually about contentment. It's about contentment. And so, in order to understand why it's about contentment, we have to look at the context. And so we begin by going to Philippians chapter 4, and we start in verse 10 to understand the context for this verse. Paul writes in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now, context is always key. we got to get the context. And in order to understand what's going on, we need to understand a little bit of background of Paul's ministry here and his engagement with the Philippian church. See, Paul founded the Philippian church during his second missionary journey. And we can read all about that in Acts chapter 16, about how he founded the Philippian church. And after he left the church in Philippi, they actually gave him two gifts. They sent him two gifts when he was continuing to minister on his second missionary journey. And they were a tremendous help to him in supporting him throughout the rest of that second missionary journey. Eventually, Paul made his way back to Jerusalem and he got arrested. And then after a couple years, he was taken to Rome where he was imprisoned. And he was unable to support himself. He was confined to one room and couldn't work, couldn't leave. And so he had no means to support himself. And again, if we read a little further on into the rest of chapter 4, we read that the Philippians sent him another gift. They sent him another gift while he was in Rome in order to support him there so that he could have food and survive. And so Paul is writing this to say thank you for that gift. So there's some of the context with regard to the interaction between Paul and the Philippian church. But we also need to know something a little bit about Grecian culture and Roman culture, specifically with how they wrote letters. See, the way that letters were written and the way that scrolls were rolled up, when you received a letter, you would read the end of the letter first. 
If it was rolled a certain way, you'd have the end of letter on the outside, kind of like the envelope saying who it's from, or if it was rolled the reverse way, the first where you would open it up, you'd read the end of it first to know who it was from. And then you'd go back to the beginning and kind of, okay, go from there. So in all likelihood, this verse 10 or thereabouts was the first section that the Philippians read when they received that letter. Well, well why is this important? Well, it's important because this section is all about contentment. And then Paul tells them throughout the rest of the letter how to be content. The letter to the Philippians is all about joy and contentment. That's what it's about. And the stage is set for that right here in this paragraph, which we read at the end, but really should be understood to be at the beginning of the letter. So the first thing that Paul does is thank them for their gift, but then he tells them that even if they hadn't been so generous, he would have remained content. Paul had learned the secret of being content, and so we continue on in verses 11 and 12. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So there we go. This whole paragraph, including our twisted scripture, is about contentment and learning how to be content and how to have joy, which biblically, joy and contentment, they're essentially synonymous. They're, they basically mean the same thing. Well, what does it mean to be content? In the Greek, this word literally means self-sufficient, sufficient to self, and it referred to someone who was independent of influence from external circumstances independent of the influence of external circumstances. In fact, it referred oftentimes to countries that had no need of imports. They didn't import anything. They were completely self-sustaining. They were content. So to be content describes the person who needs nothing externally to be satisfied in life because all that they need or desire is already within them. So, the circumstances that they find themselves in, that's not going to affect their satisfaction in life. The, the possessions that they have, or the relationships that they have or don't have, the jobs they have or don't have, the salaries that they make, whether they have unmet dreams or expectations, all of those things are external circumstances. And none of those things influence the person who is fully content, who has learned to be content. Well, you might be wondering, why was Paul so content? I mean, the guy's in prison. What's going on here? He's got nothing. He's been beaten. He's been tortured. He's been shipwrecked. He's been stoned to death, left for dead. How can this guy be content? Because you don't just wake up one day 
independent and unaffected by all the fluctuations of everything going on around you. It just it doesn't happen. How could Paul get there? Well, anticipating that question in the mind of his readers, Paul gives us the answer in our twisted scripture. Verse 13 is Paul's answer as to how he can be content. He says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Paul recognized the source of contentment within him was his Savior and Lord. Something that was completely independent of the external circumstances going on around him. By God's grace, Paul had put all of his trust in Jesus and submitted to him as much as he knew how. And therefore, Paul became independent of the external circumstances because of his new identity as a child of God, as a son of the Most High. Paul is saying here that he is independent of the circumstances around him because he is so completely dependent on his Savior and Lord. So Philippians 4.13 is not a proclamation of strength in Jesus. Philippians 4.13 is a proclamation of utter and complete dependence on our Savior and King. And it's because of that dependence that never-ending supply of love and grace and mercy that we have that we can be content regardless of our external circumstances. And this really echoes what James wrote in his letter in chapter 1, verse 12, when he said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Notice that this person in this verse isn't trying to get out from under the trials. They're remaining steadfast within the trial. How? Because they're depending on Christ. They are content because of the power they have through Christ. Of course, living in this country especially, but really anywhere in this world, we know that this message of contentment and and lack of influence from our external sources runs completely counter to everything that this culture is trying to get us to believe and do. Completely counter to everything because this culture is trying to make us discontent at all times. You ever think about that? Everything in this culture is trying to make you discontent. That is the goal of our world. Some interesting facts here. Did some research. In 2012, this is almost five years ago, so the number has gone up significantly since then, In 2012, almost $450 billion was spent annually on marketing and advertising. $450 billion. It's almost half a trillion dollars to make you try to buy something that you don't really need, but that you want, or to go on that vacation, or to get those new clothes, or have that new car, or or get your hair done, or or whatever it is. Half a trillion dollars spent to make you discontent annually. One marketing study found 
that consumers, that's you and I, encounter countless advertising images during the course of everyday life. Many of these images are idealized, representing life more as it is imagined than as it actually exists. Repeated exposure to idealized images raises consumers' expectations and influences their perceptions of how their lives ought to be, particularly in terms of their material possessions. The result of both of these processes for some consumers is discontent and an increased desire for more. Well, gee, there's a revelation. This is what advertising is trying to do. It is trying to make you discontent by painting a picture that's a lie. This isn't how it really is, but I'm going to make you think it is so that you want it to be that way, so that you can never have it, so that you're discontent and you continue to want it. That's what our world does. Who is the father of lies, by the way? Uh, 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 oh, that's right, the devil. A social marketing historian noted a change in American advertising after World War I from conveying product information to manufacturing desire. The public, business people feared, was too frugal. So to rev up the economy, products were associated with images, glamour, and personal identity. Marketing moved from fulfilling needs to creating them. Thirty years later, the post-World War II boom gave us planned obsolescence, whose most recent incarnation is the need for continual upgrading of our electronic gadgets. I mean, you realize that the way they make these things is so that they break intentionally, right? That's why my screen is always cracked. They want us to continue to buy new stuff so that they continue to advertise it to make us discontent. It's, it's, it's a part of the plan. They're not making things to last. One marketing advisor, this is what he taught his students. He taught his students this. As an advertiser, it is your job to create discontentment inside the psyche of your prospects and make them desire the change that you're offering. That change can look lots of different ways. But whatever it is, it's always calculated to try to make you discontent. This is the world that we live in. This is the culture. It's trying to sell us the lie that we need this or need that, or you won't be happy unless you have this or that. You've got to keep up with these people who have those things. And our flesh, that part of us that doesn't want to follow after God, that part of us that, that likes to be selfish and keep ourselves on the throne, it, it loves that lie. Doesn't it? I mean, it, it just, it, we just fall for it where we try to gratify our desires instead of being satisfied with the amazing gifts that God has already provided and given us. So how did Paul learn to overcome the messages of culture at all times that are trying to make him, as well as you and I, discontent? 
Well, there's a word in verses 11 and 12 that occurs two times. And that word is, he learned it. I have learned. I'd circle that if I were you in verses 11 and 12. I have learned to be content. Paul didn't just wake up one morning fully content. Nor is contentment something that we can kind of muster on our own strength. Like, I am just going to will myself to being content. There is no power in the will. We can't do that. It's something that God produces within us. Part of the fruit of the Spirit. Part of learning to love is joy. What word is synonymous with contentment in biblical thought? Joy, contentment. It's part of what God produces within us as we, as we yield to his spirit at work in our lives. But we've got to learn how to do that. It's a process. In the Greek, have learned, it's one word in the Greek, means to learn by experience. It's not mere classroom training. You can learn parts of it sitting here and listening to a sermon, but then you've got to go from here and you need to actually experience what it's like to rely on the Spirit moving in your life. It means to discover a fact and to genuinely understand it and accept it and put your faith in it because you learn that it's true over time. See, this isn't just about learning knowledge. It's about experiencing truth that you can put your faith in. That's how you learn something with this Greek word, and that's how we learn to be content. We experience God's faithfulness and his grace in our lives over time that we can learn to trust in what he has for us, regardless of what's going on around us. The tough thing is, it doesn't happen like that. It, it is a process. Paul is writing this letter about 30 years, give or take, after he became a Christian. And he can finally say, at that time, I've learned to be content. And I guarantee he would say, and oh, by the way, I still struggle with it sometimes. And then that's not in the text, but I bet if we sat him down and asked him, he'd say, oh yeah, yeah, that happens. Because I don't know about you, I mean, that's a pretty comforting thought to me that, that it took Paul at least 30 years to learn this, and he still had more to learn because I find myself being discontent still. I find myself in circumstances where I'm like, come on, God, why? I mean, can any of you relate to that, or am I the only one who's just spiritually mature here? All right, and that's, good. that's good. This past week, my wife um, took my kids on a day trip to the beach. They had um, one week left before they went back to school, so she thought, eh, let's go to the beach. And what kid doesn't love the beach, right? So they get to the beach, and it's a gorgeous day, beautiful day. <laughs> I don't like the beach either. Yeah, right, yeah. But kids, I mean, little kids, they love the beach. They love playing in the water. And, and so and they get there, and it's a gorgeous day, sun's shining, and apparently, like, all of New Jersey had the same idea because the beach they went to was just swamped with people. So immediately, what starts happening? I don't want to be here. That was mercy. She's, yeah, the littlest one. They start complaining. Then they go into the water, and the water, the waves are, like, really strong for whatever reason, so they can barely go in the waves, and they're getting knocked over. 
and they're walking in the sand, and the sand at this beach isn't like the sand at the beach that we usually go to. It's really coarse, and so it's like tearing up their feet, and they're just, yeah, 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 I want to go home. Now, parents, you know that when your kids start whining and complaining, it puts you in the most glorious of moods, doesn't it? <laughs> and so the discontentment of my children began to affect my lovely bride. And so eventually she just said, fine, let's go home. And she took him home with like half of the day left on the beach day. And isn't that how it works sometimes? I mean, sometimes we're like my kids where this doesn't go the way I expected it to go. And I start whining and complaining. Or sometimes we're like my wife and we're just around people who are always whining and complaining, i.e., people who don't have Jesus, or people who do, and <laughs> we're still whining and complaining, <laughs> like me. <laughs> and we fall into this trap of discontentment, right? We don't get our way. I don't get what I want. And Paul says, we've got to learn. It's a process, but we've got to learn to be content, continuing to disconnect ourselves by God's grace through the power of the Spirit from the influence of the external and being reminded of the truth of who we are and what we have as children of God. That's, that's what we need to learn. But, but how do we learn it? What, what truth do we need to learn in order to overcome the lies of the world seeking, us, seeking to make us discontent and those circumstances which are constantly pressing in when things don't go our way? Well, here's, here's where the brilliance of Paul writing this letter and the Holy Spirit moving through Paul to write this letter come in. Because remember, in all likelihood, this was the first thing that the Philippians read. And then they would go to the beginning of the letter, and if you ever read Philippians through this lens, you'll be like, whoa, that's a whole new way of looking at it. Everything he wrote was teaching them how to learn contentment. Everything. Every single piece of this letter is about how to learn to be content, how to learn to be joyful in the Lord in the midst of whatever circumstances we're going through. So we're gonna, we're gonna go back to chapter one Let's turn back in your Bibles to chapter 1, and I just want to touch on four truths. There's others in here, but I want to touch on four of them that we can ask God to help us to learn so that we can become more content in Him. So, truth number one. Truth number one, Paul says right off the bat, hey guys, realize that I'm a work in progress that the Lord will one day complete. He says in chapter 1, verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Aren't you happy that we're a work in progress and one day we actually will be finished? But here's the lie, and there's two of them that the world will tell you. There's two lies that the world will try to get you to believe. First of all, that you're the one responsible for perfecting yourself. You're the one who has to look beautiful. 
You're the one who has to become educated. You're the one who has to get the job to make the money to have all the stuff. You're the one who has to become more and more holy like Jesus under your own strength and power. You've got to do all of it. That's not what Paul said. That's not truth. Who's the one who's doing the work here? It's God. It's our Father. Through the Holy Spirit, He is doing the work within us. Now, later on in chapter 2, he writes that we're to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling, but even there he says, as God works in you and through you to will and to work for His good pleasure. It's always God working in us. It's always the Spirit at work as we yield to Him. So no, you're not responsible for your own perfection. God will take care of that. But the second lie that the world wants you to believe is that, you know what, if you work hard enough, you can actually get there. You can arrive at a place of pure happiness and peace just with some hard work and a little elbow grease. You just work a little harder, and one day you'll be, to reti- be able to retire and see the world, and everything will be great. You just, you just keep, keep, keep your nose to the grindstone, you keep working out, and you'll have the body that you always wanted. It's, it's a lie. It's a lie. Because this is a process that we are in our entire lives as God is refining us and molding us and chipping away. I'm not telling you not to pursue healthy living. <laughs> okay? You should do that. Paul says it has little value. I mean, but there's some value in it. I guess. It's in 1 Timothy, in case you're wondering where that verse is. Here's the point. I'm a work in progress that the, world will, wor- the Lord will complete. When either I die and go to see him, which will be great, couldn't have anything better happen, or when he returns, which I guess could be something better. That, that could be better. I'd, I'd rather have Jesus come back and reign. But in either of those two scenarios, that is when I'll be complete and perfect and glorified. Praise God. But until then, I trust that, the, uh, that God is continuing to work in me through his spirit as I submit to that work being done in my life. Truth number one. Truth Number two, I'm the most satisfied when I'm focusing on others. Paul writes, skipping down to verse 21 of chapter 1, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And then, Flipping over to chapter 2, he writes in verses 3 and 4, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, the world tells us that we'll be the most satisfied when we focus on who? 
me. I'll be the most satisfied when I just, when I just do me, when I just have it my way. And whatever other slogans are out there that are about focusing on our own selfish desires. But Paul, he dispels that lie and he reminds his readers that contentment and joy is found when we humbly serve others just like Jesus did. If you're ever in a place of discontentment, the first thing that I would encourage you to do is go and serve someone else. Get your eyes off of yourself. The more we die to ourselves and learn to let go of the things that we crave and the things that we demand and the things that we think we're entitled to, the more we'll lovingly serve others and grow in humble contentedness. And this this doesn't mean that we just serve out of some legalistic duty. That does nothing for contentment. We serve out of a love and a thanksgiving and a humility that our God is producing within us because we want to worship him. It's about worship. Service, loving others, is one of the primary means that we love our God and worship him. Now here's, here's something that I would write down for you all to think, of, think on. I've thought about a lot this week. Discontentment, discontentment, is primarily the product of self-preoccupation. We can't get our eyes off of ourselves. And so we're discontent because myself isn't getting what myself wants. We become obsessed with our success or with our failures or with our dreams or our desires or our needs or whatever it is that we think that we want. And that obsession drives us to discontentment until we attain it. And then after we attain it, we realize that it isn't as satisfying as we thought it would be. And so now we want something more, and we're discontent yet again. That's the cycle. I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it. Oh, I got it. It's so good. It's not good enough anymore. I want more, I want more, I want this, I want that. Oh, I got it. It's so good. Oh, it's not good enough anymore. I want it, I want it, I want it. That's the cycle that we go on. Discontentment is primarily the product of self-preoccupation. Therefore, contentment, I am most satisfied when I am focusing on others. Truth number three. I'm neither defined by the world nor by my past. Well, this is a biggie. This is all about knowing our identity as sons and daughters of the king. Paul writes in chapter 3, flip over to chapter 3, starting in verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. And then he goes on to list a whole bunch of reasons why he's pretty much the man. Paul was the man. But then he says... In verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count 
everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Now, from a worldly perspective, Paul had a whole lot to boast about. Highly, highly educated, well-off, respected, powerful, authority, He had everything that the world said he should have in order to be happy. But he learned not to be defined by any of his past accomplishments, not to be defined by the world's standards. And not only did he learn not to be defined by his past accomplishments or the world's standards, he also learned not to be defined by his past failures either. Because he learned about God's grace. Even though he had killed countless Christians, persecuted them when he was zealous for God, he walked in the grace and mercy of his Savior and King. And he was free of that past identity. Praise God for the new identity that we have. Amen? Our past does not define us, good or bad. And the world's standards don't define us. We are defined by our Father who has adopted us into his family. We can say that we are princes and princesses of the king of the universe. Yeah, that is an amen, isn't it? should be more excited about this, people. That is our identity in Christ. It's a big deal. And the more that we learn that truth, the more content we will be. The world wants to define us by our education, our jobs, our physical appearance, our athletic ability, our achievements, or our failures, or any number of things that it says are important. And it's all a bunch of rubbish, Paul says. It is rubbish. Poppycock. The more we learn to walk in our identity as children of God and push aside the labels of this world, the more that we'll walk in joy and contentment regardless of the circumstances in which we find ourselves. So Paul wants us to learn that we're a work in progress, that we're most satisfied when we focus on others, that we're not defined by the world, but finally, fourthly, Paul wants us to know that we're not home yet. I'm not home yet. This world is not my home. And we can all sing the song now. Right? He says in verse 20 here, in chapter 3, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Is this world our home? No. Heaven is our home. 
our heavenly family is waiting for us to join them or for them to join us when heaven meets earth, when Christ returns to restore all things, which is going to be amazing, by the way. How amazing is that going to be when our God is sitting on his throne reigning and we will just enjoy him forever? I don't want to be saved to get out of hell. I want to be saved to be with God forever in heaven, here on earth when it's all remade, amen? Amen. That is what we are looking forward to. Yeah, we can clap for that. That's good stuff. But here's the thing. And I would write this one down too, because I've been thinking about this one a lot this week. A Christ follower's degree of contentment in this world is a reflection of their degree of contentment regarding the world to come. You ever think about it that way? How content I am here is a reflection with how content I am with the hope and the promises I have in the world to come. And the more satisfied and content I am with the sure hope that I have as a child of God, the more I could care less about all this junk going on around me. Yeah, it's going to affect us. It's going to because we still struggle with our flesh. But the more that we learn these things, the more we will learn to be content in any and all circumstances, just like Paul was. And this brings us back to our Mennonite brothers and sisters who fled persecution in Western Europe to Eastern Europe and then from Eastern Europe here to the United States. As they, as they moved from place to place, they learned a quiet confidence and contentment not rooted in their external circumstances but in their identity as children of God. And they worked hard and lived simple lives as farmers but they learned to be content. And then an interesting thing happened in the 1890s. A terrible drought came through the Midwest and just obliterated all of the crops that were there. And the government, we were pretty scared because the Midwest is our breadbasket, even then. And they would take that food to the rest of the East Coast. And so they sent out agents to inspect to see, is there any food anywhere that we will have to feed the country? And everywhere they went, they found dead crops, dried out crops, dead, nothing, no food, except for a little area of land in Kansas where the Mennonites had settled. And they found their crops not only surviving, but thriving even in the midst of all of the drought because, they learned, the Mennonites brought the seed that they had with them from Eastern Europe that had been cultivated in the harsh climates there and that had been crossbred with the seed there that had formerly been in Western Europe and had been cultivated in Western Europe. And this seed, which had gone through all of these different circumstances, had grown into the hardiest, most resilient seed on the planet. And it could grow through just about any circumstance and still produce fruit. And it was only because of this hardy grain of the Mennonites that our country didn't have a famine. 
a tremendous shortage of food. And not only that, but that seed became the seed that everyone else wanted to plant. Everyone wanted the seed that the Mennonites had because they saw how hardy and resilient it was. Fast forward a couple of decades to the 1970s, and there was another drought that hit Eastern Europe. And they couldn't produce food to feed themselves. And you know where they had to import their food from? They had to import their food from the same people who they had kicked out a hundred years ago, from the Mennonites, because they had an abundance of food to share. And that is what we are called to do as the content, hardy, resilient people of God. We're called to be children of God who rely on the strength of our Savior to remain steadfast through whatever circumstance we may face because of the joy, the spirit, the peace, the hope, the truth that we have learned to rest in and rely upon. Just as the seed of the Mennonites grew hardier and more resilient through the harsh environments it went through, it's the same thing that happens with us. And we produce amazing fruit that the people around us see and say, how did that grow? And then we say, I'll introduce you to him. He's my master teacher. He's my savior. He's my Lord. He's my big brother. His name is Jesus. And he can produce the same seed in you too. Let's go from here asking the Lord for his strength to learn to be content that we would be able to do all things through Christ who strengthens us and that we'd plant seeds of contented life in all those around us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.